The Saskatchewan Healthcare Coalition is hosting the All for Public Healthcare Rally in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, May 4th. It's free and you're invited. This rally is happening because our public healthcare system does not have the support it needs to meet the diverse needs of all Saskatchewan residents. For years, it has been underfunded, ignored, and hindered. So join Donna and I in person on May 4th in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan for a walk, speeches, networking, and community building. Link for more information is in the show notes. Hope to see you there. In this episode, we're talking about addiction, PTSD, ADHD, and parenting with service provider Susie Doucette a childhood trauma and addiction survivor from Kamloops, British Columbia. I'm feeling anxious. Anxious is just a symptom. It's actually not a, an emotion. Susie's also been healing as a parent throughout her recovery journey. I then started to parent out of fear, like a crazy mom in her vehicle, chasing her child down, and I'm having a trauma response. What's up, everybody? My name's Dan. I'm joined in studio by my wife, Donna, and we're talking to Susie about healing trauma, living with PTSD and ADHD, parenting and recovery, and more right here on Hard Knocks Talks, your addictions podcast. Let's get it. This is Hard Knocks Talks. What's up, Suze? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Can you just take like a couple of minutes and just give us like a, a bit of an overview? Like where did where did the addiction take you? Um, I started using substances when I was really young. Um, I was just a child myself. I was mm-hmm. like 12, 13 years old when I started to dabble. It led into harder substances. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those substances then started to impact like my home life as well. Um, it impacted my family. I think I left home when I was like 16, 15, 16 years old, just because I was just not having, um, I wasn't doing well with structure and discipline, we'll say. Mm. Um, so I thought at that time, like I knew everything, like the typical kind of teenager and I experienced homelessness. Um, I know that now back then I did not, I wouldn't have been able to identify it as homelessness then, uh, but I was couch surfing. And then that led to just further really like bad decision-making um obviously when there's crime and drugs you kind of get caught up in that lifestyle um and yeah it was it was a hard life to live and i didn't have a care in the world were you using to die i would say i was using to not feel anything and Mm. if i died i didn't care yeah so tell us what um what recovery looked like for you now i we we were talking a little bit about the anonymous fellowships and stuff. Like, why don't you shed a little light on us? What worked for you in the beginning and, and what didn't? So in the beginning, I was like 18 years old. I was actually put into a halfway house and they were forcing me to do programming. So I was mm. serving a conditional sentence and they were telling me I had to do anger management. I had to learn life skills. I had to attend programming. Um, I had to attend NANAA, and it was very driven by a system, mm-hmm. but it wasn't my choice. So, of course, like that was met with resistance because they didn't ask me what it was that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I flopped a lot. Um, I was a very angry person, so I, it was met with resistance. Um, anyone who tried to talk to me, I would just shut them down. I would not yeah. listen um, I went through many, many uh, caseworkers. I went through many um, counselors. I went through program to program to program. Going to AA and NA, it was just like, want, 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 want. Like, it just mm-hmm. wasn't landing. 
Yeah. You you were going getting bounced around to all these programs. At what point did something change for you? There's many points throughout my life where we, you know, those aha moments. Um, so when I was in my early 20s, like I knew that if I continued to use the substances, I was going to die. Mm -hmm. I had not just one, but like many overdoses at that time as well. And when I had that last overdose, I knew that something needed to change. And so I made the conscious decision to choose a different life. I needed to choose to live rather than to use substances. Mm. And so, um, mm. and I started to do one-on-one -on -one counseling. Um, and it was tough because it's a vulnerability piece of being able to share some of those dark parts of your life without shame and just be a, authentic and raw. And so it wasn't until I was in my 30s where I found a trauma counselor and I started to do uh, mental health work in the beginning. So we started to look at my diagnosis of ADHD. Mm. Once I had my diagnosis of ADHD and I really started to learn about the psychoeducation part of my mental health, so much opened up in my world. I finally felt validated and I finally felt seen and mm -hmm. safe enough to be like, so I'm not the only one that felt this way as a child. I'm not the only person that does this. And so that shame was then kind of exposed and I felt safe enough to share. And that mm -hmm. was the first part of my recovery was learning that a lot of my childhood was based off of my mental health. So a big part of like ADHD and trauma is like, I've had, I've worked with counselors on my trauma work and it's like, what is it? Is it a trauma response or is it an ADHD response? Because they do mimic each other. Hmm. Um, and so when psychiatry does do any form of assessment, do the trauma work first. And if you still are experiencing those symptoms, then you probably have ADHD. Hmm. Like my mind is just going right now. <laughs> so you had this realization, you have ADHD, you start getting the education and you start finding some peace in your life. Now, before when we talked, you said we need to regulate our nervous system before we can work on the trauma. And you kind of just said something that opposes that just there. So can you unpack that for us? Like, what do you mean? Like, how do you learn to regulate your nervous system before you start handling the stuff that's making you go bonkers? Yeah. So, I mean, and it's going to sound like pretty cliche because like in in programming, they're always talking about self-care. They're always talking about taking care of your, yourself and, you know, regulating your nervous system is understanding that one, it's like 200 million years old. It goes way back to the beginning of time. And our ancestors' nervous system has carried on. So we're looking at epigenetics as well, right? So epigenetics is just our, our, our family's history, our lineage. So if we have a family history of, you know, a lot of trauma, that's all ingrained in our DNA. And so our nervous system has always been impacted. And so for myself, I know that I have intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. And so my nervous system, and it also is impacted when you're in in vitro. So mothers who have pregnancies where there's a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, um, mm -hmm. if there's substances as well, 
that child's going to come into this world and their nervous system is already impacted. Mm -hmm. And so a form of regulating it is one learning about it. And that's called the polyvagal theory. And one thing about polyvagal theories is talks about, you know, the fight, flight and freeze response. And it talks about the window of tolerance. Our window of tolerance is something that we're supposed to ebb and flow in every day. Mm-hmm. And so our window of tolerance is what we call the green zone. And sometimes like my window's this big and sometimes my window's this big. It just depends. But if you look at your epigenetics and you're born into a chaotic family or you're brought into a form of neglectful home, whether it's emotional neglect, mental neglect, like any type of neglect as a child, your window of tolerance is going to be even smaller. Mm-hmm. So you look at those family systems, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. Mm-hmm. How do you think your nervous system is going to respond to any form of, you know, impact in your life? Yeah. When you need trust, when you need to feel, when you need exactly. to talk. So when we're not in our window of tolerance, there's a part called the the hyperarousal. So that's where you are really high on the spectrum of this is where anxiousness comes in. This is where addictive behaviors come in, um, online shopping. Um, you are e- easily agitated, uh, road rage. You're, th- you're that high. Mm-hmm. Then is there's parent the rage other- a thing? <laughs> yeah. And we then laugh, there's the bottom. That's a serious <laughs> question. God damn, help us, Susie. <laughs> and then there's the bottom part of the window, which is the hypo arousal. And this is where fatigue comes in. This is where depression comes in. This is where you literally have the inability to get out of bed. You are gapping out on time, dissociation, and you're no longer in that window. And people can get stuck here. Mm -hmm. So if you're having these days where you either go high to low, high to low, your nervous system is impacted and you're not in your window of tolerance. So how do you get to that window of tolerance? This is the work that I do today. So before you, before you go, before you go into what you do today, now tell us, what do you do today? Now you were just talking about being, uh, uh, working with a trauma counselor and, um, that has morphed in your life into you doing this work with other people, correct? Yeah. So I worked in the addiction field for eight years. And Mm -hmm. then in the last two years I've switched to now I work as a, a trauma counselor. Uh, so I work specifically with women right now. Um, for a nonprofit organization, and I mm-hmm. focus on what we call stage one trauma work. Uh, it's emotional regulation and coping mechanisms to have a better quality of life, basically. Hmm. We're talking about regulation. Um, what does that look like? How do we find our window of tolerance? How do we get into it? And how do we avoid getting too far out of it? I mean, there's no way of avoiding it because every day there's stress. It's just how we're managing it and how we're managing our own nervous system. Hmm. I mean, you look at like our drive to work. If someone cuts me off and I fly off the handle and I'm like, Hmm. rah, 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 rah. I'm not in my window of tolerance. But then I just like take a deep breath and I'm like, hey, that's a waste of time and a waste of energy. I'm not going to give this person who cut me off that that part of my life or headspace. Hmm. And I just move on with my day. I'm back in my window of tolerance. But. When we have mental health such as ADHD um, and 
anxiety, it's harder because now we're looking at strategies that work for you and it's mm -hmm. all independent. So if you are someone that has flashbacks because you have deep rooted trauma and you are dealing with night terrors, it's going to look different than someone who um, isn't a checkout and gets anxious because someone's standing behind them. It's different, mm -hmm. but essentially the tools are still the same. You just have to find something that works for you, whether that is a breathing technique. And so one way is like doing figure eights on your leg. And so when you're making the top part of the eight, you're taking a deep breath in. And then when you reach to the bottom, you're exhaling. Breathing mm -hmm. is one of those tools that really helps our body to settle down. It's, it helps me. I I can't even begin. I just, I have to butt in and just talk about that for a second. And people that watch the show, they hear me rant on about breath work all the time, but honestly, like it, it changed my life and now it's just, it's still not perfect. Oh, we have a, we have a freaking cat and a dog. There's a cat. There's the dog. Hey, Sue. <laughs> so, um, we, uh, Sorry, I was distracted by the fluffy thing in the camera down there. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of ADHD. Yeah, no, so breath work is one part, but there's also a part where we call it containment. So say you're having a moment and you're like emotionally overwhelmed and you're not even able to identify those, those emotions because as you know, in addiction, we tend to numb. So the first part is to then, you know, take a feeling wheel chart and get familiar with feelings. You know, it's kind mm -hmm. of that, that iceberg effect where people talk about the top and then there's the bottom. Mm -hmm. We want to get to that bottom. We want to know what these feelings are and identify them. So we're working at being able to use the language of I'm feeling anxious. Okay. But anxious is just a symptom. It's actually not a, an emotion. It's a symptom of another emotion, but what is it? So maybe you're feeling abandoned or maybe you're feeling unheard or you're feeling unseen. Okay. So then let's look at that deeper and put those emotions into, you know, a container where you're safe enough to talk about them with someone. And if you're not safe enough to talk about that with someone right away, then that's where you bring it into your therapy. That's where it comes in with me, right? They literally manifest like, visually a jar and putting these overwhelming emotions into this jar, closing it up and giving their nervous system a message. And that message is, I'm feeling really overwhelmed. I'm feeling abandoned. I'm feeling unseen. I'm feeling unheard, but I'm safe. And when I'm ready, I'm going to unpack these emotions with someone such as my counselor or friend and then work through them. That's when you start to get that nervous system down because you're actually validating the emotion mm -hmm. when we don't feel heard and seen that's where the anxious butterflies come in that's where the heart palpitations come in the sweaty hands the mm -hmm. anger the reactiveness it's because we don't have the validation mm. wow let's take just a second here and uh call out some sponsors uh, if you are struggling with the substance use of a loved one or have tragically lost a loved one to drug-related harms, reach out to Stronger Together Canada, peer-led support groups by Mums Stop the Harm. If you are in search of private inpatient addictions treatment, check out Prairie Sky Recovery Centre, located in Lipsick, Saskatchewan. If you are looking for help with criminal record suspensions, the Elizabeth Fry Society of Saskatchewan offers 
covers all associated costs for women or gender diverse individuals to apply for criminal record suspensions. Reach out to Chelsea at 306-668-0635. If you are a professional and wish to deepen your understanding of substance use disorder, check out the Ames SK program through the College of Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan designed to help you improve health outcomes for individuals with substance use disorder. To make contact or learn more about today's sponsors, to check out our new merch, or if you want to show us some love and buy us a coffee, all those links are in the show notes below. So what was it like getting into trauma therapy with others? Like, did you walk in there thinking like, I am all healed. I am going to be able to handle all of this and never get triggered. Like, what was it like walking into that role after what you'd experienced? No, that's not reality. Reality is, is you're going to get triggered. Yeah. Um, there's transference all the time. Um, being a, like being a counselor today and having the demographic and the people that I work with. Um, yeah, there, there's definitely times where I'm hearing a story and it hits home and there's an emotional response. That's where I really have to work at, you know, managing my own self, my regulation. And that's where, you know, that breath work comes in. That's where, you know, I hold it in. And then after session, I can do some debriefing. But reality of it is, is that I have lived trauma. I have experiences where I'm going to be severely triggered. But now I feel like I have the coping mechanisms. I have the support an understanding of what it is that I'm feeling. I have the emotional language and understanding that this will pass and I am in charge of my life and I can work through this no matter how hard that struggle is. I have a clinical supervisor that I work with and I, I do a, like a lot of work still to this day. Like I've been in trauma therapy myself for the last 10 years. So you're, so, you're still actively engaging in your own therapies as well as absolutely. okay absolutely because mm -hmm. i find too like when i'm doing the work that i'm doing new doors are always opening there are always new windows that i'm peeking through where it's like i've worked on some things that i may have worked on several years ago and it it supported me then mm -hmm. and it might not surface but then it will surface again and i'm like hey i want to look at that at a deeper level or my thought process is now different mm -hmm. and my understanding is now different because I'm no, I'm not the same person I was several years ago. My knowledge has changed. My supports have changed. My mm. way of thinking has changed. And so there are times where I will go back and be like, okay, hey, remember when I did this and I was living this lifestyle? I'm curious to why I was doing that. And I, I use it as an analogy of like pulling the matzo stick apart. I want to look at the cheese. I want to look at why I was doing those things. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking also at patterns in my life. Mm -hmm. so. so you work with women who have experienced a lot of trauma, but that's, that's your, your main focus right now, right? Is that a common thing? Do you get a lot of a lot of women coming in like, I want to dig in and find all the things or are they very much like trying to glaze over? Like, what does that look like? What does the process look like? It's very individualized. Um, I have some women that come in and they want to dig deep and dig deep fast and right yeah. away. Yeah. Um, but ethically, I, I'm not able to do that. I have to provide them with some psychoeducation first so that they could regulate and handle the trauma so that they're not going to do more damage, mm. meaning that 
when they come in, it's like, okay, let's make sure you're safe first. What is home life like? How are you regulating? Who are your supports? Do you have any, anyone else in the home? These types of questions. And then we get into, you know, what are your coping strategies? What are your supports? Once they have that established and they have the emotional language also to understand that big emotions are gonna come through once they start looking at these, those aha moments are gonna come through and I don't want them to downward spiral and then get off into a worse place. Mm. And so once we've established that, you know, foundational part, then we can start looking at, you know, touching base on some of those memories. I don't do what we call stage two trauma work. I focus on stage one. I also Mm. look at my clients in a holistic point of view. I am a Métis woman. I look at all my clients holistically. So I look at the mental, I look at the emotional, I look at the physical, and I look at the spiritual. What are we going to focus on? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's that mental part where the hamster's on the wheel all the time. They're constantly in here overthinking. Okay, so what strategies are we going to use so that we can give this a break? And a lot of times we got to go from here to here. So I guess like my question is kind of this... Um... Like I have these traumas and mm-hmm. I I did a lot of like breath work and meditation and self-hypnosis and different things on my own because I didn't really have access to services and different things of that nature. So I did a lot of work with like surrendering that which no longer serves you. And like I did this visualization mm-hmm. about, you know, put these thoughts and feelings on a leaf and watch it roll down the stream and it's it's gone. So now I have, I feel like a lot of this stuff is back there and I have Mm -hmm. moved forward with my life, you know? And so I'm wondering, I guess, like, why would a person go back? Like, what purpose would it serve for someone like, say, myself to go back? Right. I mean, I don't think that you always have to go back. I think it really is an individual journey. Everyone's journey is different. I don't want to go back and look at domestic violence. I don't want to go back and look at my addiction. I don't want to go back and look at some of the ways that I was living my life. I'm no longer that person. Mm -hmm. I have evolved. I have new coping strategies. I have different ways of living a life. I ride a motorcycle now. There was a study that was, you know, done by, I think it was a psychiatrist in Calgary who showed that anyone with PTSD symptoms and got on a motorcycle, it actually subsided the symptoms because they were able to be in the present moment because they were able to look around and look at the people who are driving beside them and look at their safety because they're Mm hypervigilant. Why do we have this thought and belief that we have to look at our past and heal from it to move forward? We really Mm -hmm. don't. Okay, thank you. That validates kind of how I feel about it, because like I've had some people be like, "Well, you need to look closer at that." I'm like, "No, I, I don't feel like I do," (laughs) and I just don't want to open that Pandora's box, really, because uh, ultimately, I don't know what purpose it would serve. It sounds like you have closure. It sounds like you've come to terms with it. So why have the that come back forward? Mm -hmm. Does it serve a purpose to go back and look at that stuff? No, it sounds like you've done the work. It sounds like you have coping mechanisms. It sounds like you've moved forward. 
if there comes a point in your life, maybe later in life, where you want to look at that at a deeper level, then that's when you do so. But if you're not feeling that right now and people are like, you need to look at that closer. Well, that's not really client-centered focus. That's them telling you to do something. They're not on your healing journey. You're on your healing journey. You know what's best for you. And that, that's why I, I kind of asked that a little earlier in sort of kind of trying to be a bit of an anonymous about it. But, you know, that, that's been a conversation that we've had, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and neither one of us could really find a place where we could meet in the middle about that, have any level of understanding and why the other one thought that way. So I kind of asked that and now it's just become a lot more clear. So good. <laughs> I mean, I, I have clients that come through and they, they want, they're like, I want to know why I don't remember my childhood. That's the typical, you know, first meet and greet. I want to know why I don't remember my childhood. Mm-hmm. Well, your body is in a response to keep you safe. You don't have to work on childhood trauma and relive all that and remember those memories to have any form of healing heal today in the present moment what is it that you are wanting to look at or able to look at what are the memories that you do remember you don't have to go and do the whole past stuff so why why do you do it then I don't go and do a lot of my old stuff. I only do the work when the window is open. Mm. So when I say my window is open, it's because something has been done in my one-on-one session with a, with a client and there's transference, meaning that their story has hit home for me. And then I have a response to it. And sometimes that response isn't negative. Sometimes it's sorrow or it's sadness or abandonment. And it's like, whoa, what is that? And I will bring that to my counselor and been like, hey, I had a session and I had an emotional response and I want to look at this. Mm-hmm. And that window then is open. And then I will be like, oh, that reminds me of when I was nine. And then that memory comes through and I've never thought of that memory until that moment. Mm -hmm. Hmm. It's interesting. Well, that's a breath of fresh air. Let me tell you, Mm because I thought Donna was walking around not doing the work. (laughs) (laughs) She's doing the work. She's doing the work. Yeah, five. (laughs) Give me the five. Yay for the work. (laughs) And and on that, like talking about casework and stuff like that is fascinating to me, particularly of late because I've I've been working with very very vulnerable population and uh, there's like a few clients who have you know similarities and like there's there's been some mirror inc- incidences in particular this one woman who it is literally like looking in the mirror of me 6 years ago and it's been wild you know yeah. but it hasn't it hasn't elicited these like awful traumatic like r- I don't even know how to describe it, but I see her. I see her, mm-hmm. you know, and I and I'm walking around thinking like, as, am, am, am I doing it right? Like, am I healthy? Am I OK? I mean, I think we all kind of have those moments working in this field. I, I have those moments where I have a, a, a client come in and their story hits home where I'm like, whoa, like I get goosebumps listening to their story. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I can say like, you know what? I really hear you. I really see you. I can relate to you in so many ways. I'm here to support you. What does that look like for you? How can I support you on this journey? Mm-hmm. And they just like in those moments are just like 
wow, you mean you really do see me? Absolutely. And it's like for them to feel and have that courage to even share their story with me. I have women who come in and I'm the first person they ever disclose to. And what an honor to sit there and hold space for them where they actually feel safe enough to do so. It, it sounds to me like as your own knowledge of your of your of your practice now and and uh, the things that you're learning along the way, has there ever been a time where you'll learn something new and it will make you question a trigger or it will re-trigger you in a new way, like the same experience that you had? So yes and no. So what I will touch on is even though I have all this experience and I have all this knowledge at the end of the day, there are times where I'm still a human mm -hmm. and that knowledge is forgotten or I'm just like, it's so close that I'm not seeing it for what it is. Mm -hmm. And two years ago, I had a slip and I, it happened so fast that I didn't even know what had happened. That pathway of addiction was like it was just freshly mowed. It was so fast that after it had happened, I had an instant moment of shame where I was like, WTF, what happened? Can you tell us like what happened? Yeah. So what had happened was I was actually going through a very messy separation and I was in survival mode and I didn't know I was in survival mode and life was going really fast. And I was doing everything possible to just stay afloat. So I was working extra long hours. I was, you know, doing what I had to do because I have two children and I was trying to stay away from my, my, my now ex because the relationship was then turning very toxic and volatile. So then what did I start doing? I started to revert to old coping net mechanisms. And I started to go out and I was hanging out with people I shouldn't have been hanging out with. And I ended up going out one night and I was offered cocaine. Cocaine was one of my DOCs. Mm -hmm. And this woman asked me, she's like, do you want a bump? Do you want a bump? And I was like, no, 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 no. And I was able to hold myself, but I didn't remove myself. Mm -hmm. And I ended up staying there. And then a moment of weakness I ended up using that bump of cocaine and then it was like tremendous guilt because I was like, what did I just do? Hmm. And at that moment I was 13 years clean and I felt like my world ended. Hmm. Where did you go from there? I went home and I isolated myself. I really internalized. I was full of shame, full of guilt. I didn't want to tell anyone what I had done. I didn't want to even tell anyone because I was so afraid of the judgment. Mm. But I leaned into that fear of being judged. And I told a friend and I was like, I don't know what happened. And she was like, I still care for you. I don't think anything different of you. And I called my counselor. And I was like, look, I need to process something with you. Mm -hmm. Called my counselor and it was like all those aha moments came back because I was like, what 
happened. I need to dissect this. I need to process this. I need to know why I did what I did. Why was that pathway just so quick that I didn't think, and it was like I was back into my addiction when I was in my early 20s using cocaine. Mm -hmm. Have you seen an increase in people accessing your services since the onset of the opioid crisis? It was quite interesting. I, I had a meeting with a woman and she actually blew my mind uh, when she spoke about the opiate crisis and our homeless population and actually brain injuries. And mm. she asked if I was seeing an influx in brain injuries come through the work that I'm doing. And I was like, interesting that you say that. Yes, I do. And she was like, do you have addicts that come through or people in recovery? And I said, yeah, I have women who are coming in with recovery. And she was like, when someone has been given naloxone multiple times, there are chances that the uh, air is not getting to their brain. And then there is a, an acquired brain injury. From the naloxone or from the overdose? From the overdose. Right. But someone who's continuously getting naloxone is constantly, you know, in an overdose crisis. And then also their brain is being impacted by not having oxygen. Right. And I was that's like, not the that's not the naloxone's fault. That's that's from the overdose. No, no, no. It's from the overdose. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. But there's an increase of overdoses, so yeah. there's an increase of brain injuries. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, wow. But that's all going under the radar. People aren't looking at our demographic of homeless population and all they see is like, oh, we need to push them away. We need to push them away rather than looking at why aren't they accessing support or what does support look like for them? Mm -hmm. Or are they able to, if someone has an acquired brain injury and it's undiagnosed and there's people are being labeled as being difficult or they can't access services. Hard to house. Exactly. Hard to house. Yeah. All those people are then going without service. But they're also not being looked at in a form of like, do they have an acquired brain injury? Do they have mental health? All of these underlying components. Mm -hmm. And it was like, wow, I never even thought of that. Huh. And now I do see an influx when I do intakes of women who are coming in with symptoms of an acquired brain injury that's undiagnosed. And it mm -hmm. could also be due to domestic violence. What's next? Like, where do you want to go? I mean, I feel like I'm still really new in this whole trauma field because I spent so long in the addiction field. Like I spent eight years there mm -hmm. and I was starting to experience, you know, burnout because it's just one, I had a lens shift because I thought that addictions was supposed to be um, health and supposed to be supported by our hospitals and detox centers and health facilities. And I saw it actually being used as a business model. Hmm. And I was blown away because it was like a revolving door of these people who are suffering and coming in and relapsing. And it was a dollar sign. It was them being utilized. They're not a person, they're a dollar sign. Mm -hmm. That bed needed to be filled. And in order for to fill that bed, we need addicts and that was like i can't do this anymore there were so many people that pass as clients and it was just starting to really impact my mental health it was impacting 
all aspects of my life. And I was like, I don't want to work in addictions anymore. Yeah. What is the root of addictions? Trauma. Trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what made me shift. So you've been a parent through all of this, like yeah. all of this, plus being a parent. Tell us a little bit about that. What does, uh, what has the conversation around your addiction sounded like with your kids as they grew older? My oldest knows that I'm in recovery. He knows that his biological father has struggled with substance abuse. I've had many conversations with him around his genetics and the fear that I have with him becoming addicted to substances. Um, he's also indigenous. And so there's his father actually attended residential school. So he's first generation, second generation, third generation survivor of residential school as well, mm -hmm. on top of both parents being addicts. So his mm -hmm. cards at birth were already full. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I got into my trauma work and I got into my addiction work, I worked really hard so that I was breaking <laughs> patterns and I didn't want my son to continue a life of anything that I had gone through or his father had gone through. <laughs> what did breaking the, for the love of God, what did breaking those patterns look like? I'm still breaking them and working at breaking them. Mm -hmm. For me, it is having vulnerable conversations. I didn't talk about drugs with my parents. So I talk about drugs with my kids. I talk about all those nitty gritty things that kids cringe at when mom walks into a room. I talk about feelings because mm -hmm. those old family rules of don't talk, don't trust, don't feel are very prevalent still to this day. And so I encourage my kids to feel safe, to come to me, to talk about everything and anything without judgment. I will be there to support them. Has my oldest taken that? That's another question. <laughs> he so, has been very resistant. Have you had any sort of breakthroughs with your with your kids in helping them understand where you came from and why? Yes. So especially with my oldest, because I worked in the addiction field for as long as I had, and him, he was dabbling at a very young age as well. So mm -hmm. when we were talking about triggers, whoa, that was a huge trigger for I, me. Let me just like, mm -hmm. that is like, I, and, and I even like, I even make some memes and stuff around that and sort of poke away at it a little bit on social media. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you say? And I'm gonna interrupt your thought here and I apologize, but I wanna dig into that a little bit more. Like, what did you say? Like when it came to light that your, your child was, was using substances, even after going through what you've been, and I'm sure having had a little bit of conversation about it, like, what was your very first thought? Panic, first of all. Um, so then this has been a lot of my work in the last few years is understanding that I can also parent through trauma. And I'm having a trauma response because my son had triggered my childhood because I was starting to see that mirror effect. My child was showing up the same way that I was showing up and it scared the living shit out of me. Mm -hmm. 
because I then started to parent out of fear. And what does that look like? It looks like a crazy mom in her vehicle, chasing her child down, dreaming at them to get in the vehicle. You're not doing this. I'm not going to allow you to do this. You're not going to live your life. I've given you this tool. I've given you this. What are you going to do? Trying to drag them into therapy, drag them into, you know, any form of support, but met with resistance. And so I had to learn how to parent. Mm -hmm. I really had to learn that it was actually my own trauma response. And that's why I was parenting that way. Once I had that moment of like, whoa, my kid's showing up like this and it's actually my own fear and it's my own emotional discharge that's going on. And I managed to settle that down and I started to look at my son as my son and it wasn't me. I had to then look at my son and be like, okay, this is your journey. And as much as I hated to sit on the sidelines and watch my son tiptoe on that black road, because here I am, I am an addictions counselor working in a treatment center, working as you know someone in this field and watching my own son tiptoe, I was like hit with shame as well. Mm. It was your fault. Have all this knowledge. It was my fault. It was what it was my fault that my son was born into this life. It was my fault that my son's gonna become an addict. I didn't parent right. I didn't do this right. I'm a right. All these messages came through. Mm-hmm. But I had to learn to let go. I can't control everything in my life. Controlling is a trauma response. Mm -hmm. Having that puppeteering effect all the time is a trauma response. Wanting to control my environment, wanting to control my kids, being a helicopter mom, that's all trauma response. Mm -hmm. I had to step aside and watch my son and pray to my creator that I made enough change and I planted enough seeds in his garden that whatever choices he makes, he's going to choose the right one. And so I had to surrender to my creator, my higher power, and just allow my son to walk this journey. And believe me, he tiptoed. He was walking on that, that black road. My son is also a very large kid. He's six foot six, 350 pounds. Whoa. Wow. He is a very large kid. Yeah. (laughs) So he was also being profiled here. Hang on a minute. You chased him down the road and dragged him into your car. (laughs) (laughs) I tried. Okay. Okay. Let's get real here. (laughs) I'm also six feet tall. Oh, okay. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I I can chase my kid down. And at the end of the day, I'm still mom. I'm still scary. Yeah. Right. Um, And that's another one of those wonderful old parenting things is you instill fear into your child. I mean, when they're little and hopefully it sticks until they're big. The other day, I actually I said to my son, I mean, I'm like, man, you're going to be a big kid. Like when you get bigger than me, you're not allowed to punch me out. You know that, right? Like you're going to remember that I didn't ever hit you. Okay, please. (laughs) Well, I mean, my son was eye to eye, toe to toe with me by the time he was 12. So realistically, like, you Mm -hmm. know, there was that component. But my son was, yeah, stepping onto this black road of dabbling in substances 
thankfully he had a really negative experience with it um and he hasn't touched it since hmm. unfortunately you know he was labeled he was then profiled because of his size and because he was you know this child that was not the cookie cutter conventional child in school what then happened he was labeled unteachable hmm. and so that's where i had to learn to parent from a more compassionate sensitive loving part so when we look at our medicine wheel that is one of the parts as we look at the feminine side and we look at the masculine side being mm -hmm. a single parent i tend to go more on the masculine side because the father was never there yeah and so i had i had an elder be like susie you need to give your son love and support not structure and discipline you got anything dad i don't i'm just uh blown away by the conversation very very fascinating <laughs> mm -hmm. thanks so much for joining us Suze. Mm -hmm. thanks for taking the time yes thanks You're for sharing welcome. your experiences we'll let you go take care my friend take care Suze. Bye. nice meeting you nice meeting you all right if you got something out of that please hit that subscribe button at the bottom of the screen turn on notifications we go live twice a week friday morning sunday evenings we're on apple Podcasts, spotify google wherever you, we're really easy to find give us a google come check us out thanks so much everybody we'll see you next time say this is hard knocks talks <laughs>